a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Thank you so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to listen to this episode. And I can promise you, you will not regret it. So as always, I'm quite excited about today's guest. So she is smart and warm and 100% imaginal. She is Emily Chang who now is CEO of the McCann World Group China. But before that, she's had the most extraordinary and extraordinarily varied journey to get there, um, including being handed the enviable but not terribly easy job of taking Apple to China. So this is a woman who knows all about how to get the best from people. So I had a very long chat with Emily a couple of weeks ago and I left the call feeling so inspired and so validated. What do I mean by that? Well, you should know by now, dear listener, that my passion, my mission, my vision is to inspire all leaders everywhere, no matter where they're working, whether they're in public or private or charities or whatever, all leaders. I want to get them to understand that we can create a world of work where leaders at all level, whether we are leading teams of five or 5,000 or 50,000, Leaders just need to understand how to get the best from humans. And I am absolutely determined to persuade the other kind of leader. You know the ones, you know the alphas, the I know everything, I have to command everything. That They don't always have to be strong. And every single leader that I interview for this podcast, whether it be Gary from P&G or Martin from SAP or the extraordinary Amy Edmondson from from the last episode. And believe me, dear people, this is not PR. I spend time talking to each one of my guests to get to know who they are, what they really believe, what they think. And every time I listen to them and every time I hear about the success that they've achieved by not being a bully, just makes me more determined. So thank you for joining me on this journey, this learning journey, because, you know, we're all learning all the time, right? And before I introduce you to the lovely Emily, I just want to say a really massive thanks for all of you who have sent me feedbacks and suggestions for what you'd like to see more of, who you'd like me to interview, uh, and how I can improve the show. Your feedback keeps me going. It's really important to me, energizes me. And especially since Amy's podcast, I've had loads of people contacting me and it's great. I love to hear from you. So just to take the gloves off here, um, just email me, cats at wearebeep.com and let me know what can I do better? Because everything can be better always. Enough of that. Let me get to the really important bit. Let me introduce you to the amazing Emily Chang.
Emily Chang. I am so, so excited to have you as a guest on Humans Leading Humans. Dear listeners, I had a conversation with Emily for the first time a week ago, and I was absolutely blown away. And I have the feeling that you will feel the same after this conversation. The way I met Emily, again, as you know, this podcast is brought to you in, in partnership with the Marketing Society. Darling Sophie, who's the CEO of the Marketing Society, got in touch and said, oh my goodness me, I've just met this woman. You need to interview her for Humans Leading Humans. So that's how Emily ended up here. So Emily, tell the listeners, how did you end up where you are? What's been your journey so far? The journey has been a little bit meandering in some ways. I started off in undergrad wanting to be a doctor. So I went to study biology and chemical engineering, decided I didn't have the emotional distance for that and went into corporate finance for my MBA, got recruited by Procter & Gamble for corporate finance and immediately transitioned into brand management. And that's how I started 11 years at P&G. I worked through all the different business units, got to do retail, went down to Arkansas, went abroad, worked in Guangzhou. And uh, I guess one thing I'd say is I never left the company. I always sort of got recruited into and raced toward the next exciting adventure. So then I was uh, recruited into Apple, where I had the privilege of leading Asia Pacific retail, and then transitioned to Intercontinental Hotels Group, where I was the chief commercial officer. This was wonderful because I think P&G is often talked about as a marketing-based company, but brand management isn't really marketing. It's teaching general management skills. It's all about leadership. So I feel like I was incredibly lucky to transition from corporate finance into basically the best leadership training in the world. Then from IHG, I moved to Starbucks. And, you know, a couple of people have been surprised by that move because I went from such a big job that was probably teeing me up for a CEO role to a smaller one brand opportunity. But nobody, I think, does digital, commerce, CRM, personalization, as well as Starbucks. And I was really interested in learning. And I think that's probably a theme there, which is it's really important to know what drives you. And for me, being able to contribute value as well as to constantly feel challenged, stretched, like I'm learning new things is really important for me. That's like sort of my formula for success. So that was about 21 years of working in corporate. And then I took a year off and wrote a book. And I think this is important as well, which is giving yourself a little bit of freedom to say, what's calling to my heart? And you know, maybe I don't have to wait until I retire to go after something that's really a passion project. Maybe I'll give myself a year and my family will support me. And we'll, we moved from China to the US for a year to see if we could write a book. And I say we, because it very much was a family affair and incredibly blessed to have written that book within a year's time. We had an agent and a publisher. And then as the book was picked up, it gave me a chance to really think, frankly, for the first time as an employee and as a leader, where do I want to work? Blank slate. I'm not being recruited directly into one place. I'm getting a lot of calls. And it forced me to kind of take a step back. And that's partly why I really like this create model as well, because everything at the end of the day is about human-centric cultures. It's about who I am as a person, what I most have to contribute. And I believe, you know, when you talk about power is excellence, I believe that we are most likely to be excellent when we're in a situation where we're thriving and anybody can survive right? But when we're thriving, that's when we can really make a difference. And being able to dissect and define the context in which we thrive, I think is really important as, again, employees and leaders to find the right fit. 
So I ended up at McCann and now I'm the CEO for China and love my job. I honestly couldn't. I'm smiling away here. Dear listeners, you can't see us, but we're both grinning away. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <we> are. <laughs> this, you know, this feeling of I'm going to be courageous enough to step off the treadmill, do something that's my real passion, and then step back on. Where I want to step back on is something that people forget is an option. We get caught up in this treadmill of fear and wanting everything to stay the same. And then you step off and follow your passion and it feels pretty damn good, right? <laughs> and it gives you time to think about what is it I really want, you know? Okay, Emily, what is your story number one? Okay, so we're talking about leadership and I have this theme because I was thinking everybody talks about leadership. What, what is my, my thought on leadership? So I'm going to go after unconventional leadership. My first story is about a woman named Diana at Procter & Gamble. Imagine in the somewhat Midwestern context of P&G, this larger than life woman with this amazing curly hair and flowing caftan striding down the hallway. She's just different eye-catching, loud, funny, passionate. And for whatever reason, she took me under her wing. And one of the first times Diana engaged with me was to invite me to her house. And, you know, that's weird and intimidating because most leaders don't invite somebody else to their home, especially I wasn't in her line management. She wasn't my director. I was just a junior associate brand manager. I was really floored. I was really intimidated. I joined in 99. I think this, this invitation came in maybe 2001. I was in a denim button-down shirt, if you can imagine that, and pleated khakis, right? Because that was sort of like what everybody wore. And you think that seems like the right thing to do. So I went to Diana's house and she sat down. Her house just reflected her personality. It was like, cool. There were like silks hanging to modularly segment the room. And she was like on a, a velvet poof. You know, I kind of have this image of her home from 20 years ago. And she said, let me ask you a question, Emily. Do, do you like what you're wearing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, ah. well, I mean, what do you mean by like? I feel comfortable in it. She's like, is it you? And I said, yeah, I know, no, I bought this outfit, you know, when I joined Procter and Gamble, <laughs> she's like, it's kind of the PNG uniform. What would you wear if you could? And I have to say, I didn't know myself that well, because again, I started in pre-med and then I, you know, I was in all different areas and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I didn't really know. I said, I, I don't know if I went out shopping now, I don't know what I would wear. I invited you here because I wanted to hear more about you. I want to get to know you and I want to encourage you to unleash yourself. I don't really think there's nothing wrong with what you're wearing. I don't really think it's the best representation of who you are. I think you're bigger than that. And she said, you know, we hired you for who you are. We didn't hire you to put you into a uniform. And she left such a deep impression. In fact, my daughter, who's 13 now, is half named after Diana. She really changed me. Though we didn't intersect for many, many years, we're not in touch right now, but I'm so, so grateful to her because again, unconventionally, she was not my line management. And I think this kind of leadership is perhaps the most untaught and unincentivized type of leadership. She saw something, she saw something in me. She reached out proactively, she did it personally, she invited me to her home and she didn't assume she asked questions. 
And I think there's a lot of power to, to how deeply she impacted me because when you invite someone to your home, you're no longer the marketing director and I'm no longer the ABM. We're two women sitting down and talking on your velvet poof <laughs> and you're tearing down these walls of hierarchy. You know, you're enabling us to see each other and engage as humans. And she, she just left so much with me. It's something I try to do. I try to open my home up and I really enjoy doing it as well. So, so it's a pleasure, not an obligation, but I think she really left that with me so early on in my career, which is this idea of, I don't need to be your boss to give you direction and to try and be a leader and an influence in your life. And she has been, and we've all had those people who just stand out as being people we want to be more like because we realize how they make us feel. And I wonder then what so many of the companies I work in, they talk about being 100% yourself at work. And yet everybody really is expected to behave the same way, look the same way to varying levels. But what do you think it was specifically that allowed that woman to come into work wearing a kaftan and feel like she could be 100% herself? What, 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 What was that? You know, what's interesting is I remember one day she told me, I'm very introverted. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. She said, I've learned. Her background, if I recall, was also engineering. And she said, I am introverted in the sense that I get energy from being alone. Being with people wears me out. But... I'm also gratified to be able to engage and pour into people. So it's gratifying, but it's exhausting for me. So I think, you know, on your create model, she's she's the E, 100%. She's all about equity, which is I'm not higher than you. I'm not better than you. I see something in you. You know, she's all about empathy, which is help me understand why you're in this ridiculous outfit. (laughs) And she was willing to explore with me and get to know who I am. And, you know, I truly believe if I had said, I love my office. She would have been like, that's awesome. <laughs> but I think she just saw something that was like, I think this woman very early on, maybe I was more of a girl than a woman, is not embracing who she is. She's trying to fit herself in. And I don't want her to make herself too small because if she does now, it might be harder to break out later. Yeah, and I was talking to Amy in, in um, last week's episode, Amy Edmondson, Uh, about exactly this, about this idea that actually you need to feel safe, you need to feel empowered, you need to be able to feel like you can be a truth sayer, because truth sayers are the most important thing within your organization. And that physical representation of that, I'm not going to look like me, I'm going to have a me at work and a me at home is so unhealthy. And not good for the people or the business. So thank you so much for story number one. (laughs) Story number two, please, Emily. Story number two, from a leadership standpoint, would be the power to me of shared experience. So this is when I worked at Apple for this amazing woman named Christy. And every time she had these global summits and brought the marketing leaders from around the world together, we did something fabulous. I have this amazing Apple blanket I still use on the weekends from a fire pit night where we all made s'mores and sat around fire pits and talked. We went on a wine tour and got to make our own wine and then taste it. And I'll tell you, these experiences are a luxury that I took for granted a little bit. In fact, I would say on some of these trips, I felt a little guilty, a little wasteful, like I'm so far from my team and I'm out here just enjoying this amazing experience. I love Christy, but can I really just let myself go and appreciate this this time? 
But then I started to realize after spending some time, and I remember it was around a fire pit with some colleagues. One, one gentleman is still a very good friend. His name is Raja Haddad. We were sitting around a fire pit talking. And I suddenly realized this is not a boondoggle. Christy is being very intentional in her leadership in creating this space and bringing us to this fabulous place and having fire pits and creating blankets for us. Because first, she's creating the space for relationships to be built and the conversations that arise through side-by-side moments. Too often, we're face-to-face. I'm in my office, which people can't see, but you'll see it looks like a living room. I have no furniture that sits between me and anybody who comes in my office, and that's intentional because I don't want to sit opposite you with something hard between us. I want to sit next to you, and so there's just a couch. And and this is something I learned from Christy is the side-by-side relationships, the times when we're not facing each other and feeling pressure, but just doing something alongside each other, that's when the humanity comes out. And that's truly a very informal, soft-styled thing that I really think powers human-centric cultures. Oh, my God. Honestly, I could not agree with you more. And I think experiences are so crucial on so many levels. Actually, you know, so many people talk about skills and what kind of skills do people need in the future of work and they give them training Mm -hmm. and it's formal training and they get a certificate at the end of it and you're like actually that's not how people learn people learn through being in experiences with other people people develop trust and psychological safety by sharing experiences with people one of the exercises we do at Beep is about getting people into it. It's a digital, virtual version of what you're talking about. It's a, it's a fire pit where people have time to dive back into themselves to remember who they are, who they want to be. And the response to that is always really emotional and, and often is, I never get the chance to talk about who I am at work to my colleagues. Right. And, you know, and I think it's the same barrier that people have where they talk about the customer. It's like, well, the customer is a human like you, you know, or my colleague. Uh, Yeah, your colleague is a human. And I love your attitude to leadership. It just makes me tingle. So this is a great thing. Do you bring this experience, this knowledge about intentional leadership and this fire pit idea, do you bring that into your work now? Is that something that works specifically well in the kind of Silicon Valley culture? Or would you say that that is a lesson that you can take into any culture anywhere? It's absolutely a lesson you can take to any culture, anywhere. It's something that requires a lot of intentionality. You know, I have this very unsexy subheadline to my book, The Spare Room. It's called How to Live with Intention and Lead with Authenticity. But intention is this sort of underappreciated word and concept, which is you can have a month go by. You can have two months go by without even having a one-to-one with somebody who reports to you if you don't make the time for it. Forget the one-to-one. What about getting out of the office and sharing an experience? So you really have to be intentional and look for those moments. So for instance, yesterday, my lunch hour happened to open up. So I just sent a message out to my my 400-person WeChat group. And I was like, hey, I have lunch free. Does anyone want to go eat? It's just a quick moment to grab a shared experience. It's something super quick and spontaneous. Or 
L'Oreal is one of our clients and they opened up this sort of online meets offline integrated store experience, which is super interesting. Of course, we've got to go see it, but why not turn that into a shared experience? So I invited the team and I said, hey, let's go together. This is not about me, the CEO, taking you to the L'Oreal store. This is us learning something new about our client and going to experience it together. And, you know, there's this bicycle that you sit on and there's a, a virtual reality screen and it looks like you're biking down Paris. That's something we get to do together. And, you know, maybe we all buy something and, and I would like to treat the team. Everyone walks away with a lipstick. And then that's sort of like the Apple blanket. You walk away with something that now has sentimental value and reminds you of that experience together. It's making memories. Yeah. It's making shared memories. Shared experience. No, I'm 100% with you. And I think it's so easy to forget that when you're in a corporation that expects there to be hierarchy and where people lose themselves. Interestingly, there was some research done about the fact that people's brains actually change when they attain a position of power. Mm. People become alphas. So your physiology is persuading you to act like a leader. I know everything, I'm best, I'm alpha. Really stupid idea. <laughs> You have to just fight your your monkey, your physiology, and understand that that's something that's happening that you have to really push against. And it's not easy, is it, Emily? No. Yeah. And I, I will say that's, that's an interesting observation. I used to, you know, we always talk about like Sheryl Sandberg's lean in. Women should just take a place at the table. Men tend to spread out and put their hands over their head and stick their feet on the table. Women kind of take this precise, tidy space. It is a generalization, but I would say it was true. For many years, I would go into the room and I would not just go sit at the head of the table. How presumptuous. Even I remember at IHG, because I had a, a big executive team, my, my full team was 5,200 people. So when we had all the leaders together, it's a big room. It's a boardroom. And everyone would leave the seat at the head of the table for me. And I would always sit on the side. And I think it made people uncomfortable. Like, could you, could you please just sit in your seat? <laughs> It, I don't know, maybe my brain changed. Maybe I had a physiological evolution where I became more accustomed to sitting at the head of the table because I was just thinking about that this last week. Whenever I go into a room, they leave the seat for me. And now I feel very comfortable sitting in that seat. But I will tell you, it took years of practice of being the leader before I was like, yeah, that's my seat. It's okay. And I don't have to feel like I'm uncomfortable because if I do, then they're going to feel uncomfortable and sense that from me. But it did take a while to change. And, you know, we talk about philosophy influencing habit, but sometimes habit can change your philosophy. Maybe yeah. my philosophy is, yeah, I, I should be able to sit in that chair, but it's just not comfortable. But after a while, you go into the room and you sit at the head of the table and it starts to become more comfortable. I was also just thinking about another silly story as you were talking about this table idea where I was doing a piece of work and it was all about co-creation and getting a bunch of stakeholders together and really I'd persuaded the leaders they needed to do more listening. And so I walked into this room, we were going to have this workshop and there's this huge table in the middle of the room and I was like, well, that's not going to work. We can't. <laughs> this is not the environment in which people are right. going to start really opening up. So I actually got these leaders to actually physically move this table to the side of the room, which was <laughs> intentional. Yeah. Because actually it immediately frames that workshop in a way which is about making them go, oh, okay, we're making, we're doing something different here. Right. And we're removing the barriers. Emily, what is your story number three? My third thought on unconventional leadership is the power of peer leadership. 
I think this is something that we also don't talk about quite as much. Let me talk about Charlie's Angels, except we called ourselves Keith's Angels. So this was at IHG. Our boss, the global CCO, was Keith Barr, who's now the CEO. Jane, Susanna, and I were the angels. And we kind of looked the part. I guess by default, I'm Lucy Liu. But Susanna, for your opinion, is this very tall, beautiful woman with flowing blonde locks. Jane is this woman who's got beautiful brown hair and a little edgier. And there's me. And... What we started to realize is we were all hired in around the same time. I was the CCO for Greater China, so I was regional role. These two were global. Susanna was global loyalty SVP, and Jane was global brands SVP. And as you guys know, in a corporate world, the global team and the local execution team are not always designed organizationally to be totally fluent. We face different KPIs. We have different priorities. We have different challenges. And oftentimes, one hasn't done the other's job, and therefore, there's not always that empathy as well. But we each saw the other person's challenge and we just decided to hold hands. I remember very early on, we met each other at a global meeting. We just clicked. We kind of joked and said we were going to be Keith's angels and we were going to figure out how to create a best-in-class model of bringing the new loyalty program. Susanna's team created the Spire Elite model, the new brand model, which Jane was creating, and the new China go-to-market model into one integrated piece. And I think it was something that we decided to do. Keith was obviously very supportive. What I started to realize is the teams watch us more than they watch the big guy. Sorry, Keith. But a lot of times they can't see to the top top person, right? They may never meet the global CEO or the CCO, but they will see us a little bit more. And if they see us engaging and meeting each other and coming together on something, disagreeing, agreeing, and then committing to a path, I had underestimated the power of peers holding hands and leading. And that is something that has influenced me as well in my own leadership. I spend a lot of time with my directs. Look, I'm the CEO and these guys are general managers, managing directors. They don't need weeklies with me. They don't need weekly guidance, right? And I don't really have guidance I can give them freshly on a weekly basis. But the reason I do meet with everybody weekly and then we have regular leadership team meetings is to ensure alignment. It's to ensure clear understanding of our business goals. And equally important, it's to co-create a shared culture because that is my job is to create the environment in which I can encourage that peer leadership. And if these guys start hanging out with each other, if they start bringing their teams together on offsites, that's when I start knowing I'm doing my job well because I'm creating that T, that trust and that transparency. So these guys can role model what that leadership and that shared culture looks like. And how do you, I love that, and and you're exactly right, that's your job. Your job is to create an environment in which those people can thrive, and they can't thrive if there isn't a clear idea of something that's shared and they can all see. How do you embody that culture? How do you make sure that they don't drift into the habits that many companies have, you know? It has, again, back to intentionality. We're super intentional about this. So we do have the regular connects. I have this big WeChat group I mentioned before where everyone's in it. And whenever I see two teams doing something, I snap a photo and post it. People see what we recognize. They see what we reward. We also, the second thing I'd say is we find moments of fun. So three different teams won Olympics projects. Well, I talked to my head of office admin. I was like, why don't we have a kind of spontaneous Olympic celebration? Wouldn't that be cool? And so every floor created their own in-house Olympics activity. You know, so <laughs> stand out on the thing and people had to do like 
their own versions of ice ice dancing. And on another floor, we have this really great room that has uh, stadium seating and they did bobsledding, which was maybe not entirely safe. Um, <laughs> but every floor did something fun. And then, you know what this did? It was just a bit of fun. And everybody went to everybody else's floor because we're in a vertical building in downtown Shanghai. So unless you have a meeting, you don't really go visit another agency. You don't necessarily go visit another team. But this creates those moments of connection where it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the 11th floor and black sled. And then I'm going to go to the 22nd floor and I'm going to do this ice skating. And then at the end, we rewarded everyone with these little McCann Olympics pins, like a gold, silver and bronze. And it just became so much fun. Is there an ROI? Hell yes, there is. I don't know what it is, but it's absolutely paying itself out because people know each other. They go to each other's floors. They're having fun together. They're doing Olympics activities together. And, you know, again, the takeaway is important. That Apple blanket, everyone has this pin and it's a really cool pin and it's something they wear proudly. And then others will ask about it, by the way. And if you're in the elevator and someone's like, oh my gosh, what is that? That looks really cool. You can talk about it. Oh, it's a McCann pin. We have this really random thing, <laughs> which was like an Olympics two-hour game that we just had across the four or five different floors of our building. So I think the first one is capturing, recognizing, and rewarding the moments when teams are working together and being intentional about it. The second one is creating just fun moments where people are coming alongside each other. You take out the politics, you take out the overthinking when you're like, look, we're going to go do an Olympics event, or we're going to go do, we decided randomly, one of our leaders is a Shanghai person. And she was like, I would like to introduce a traditional Shanghai breakfast to everyone. So she hosted a breakfast on a floor that wasn't her own floor. She runs craft and she came to a different floor to host it. And then everybody came in to taste it. And then the, the head of MRM, McCann Relationship Marketing, a different agency that's on the 10th floor was like, I like that, but I, I studied in New York. So I'm going to do a New York bagels day. And for me, my only job is to encourage, get excited, show up, celebrate. And then these things start to take off on their own because the leaders are feeling like, oh, this is something that I get to do. You're supporting it. And then one picks it up and then another picks it up. And you know, maybe the next one is two other leaders decide to go do it together. Play is powerful. And I think what you've just said about it's easy for a CEO or CXO to say a bunch of things, but unless people can see you doing it, they're never going to really believe it's okay to do that thing. So that's, I mean, it's just super smart. And, you know, you're talking about ROI. Every time that somebody sees that McCann pin, they go, oh, that looks like a fun place to work. So that's your employer branding. That's your recruitment. Presumably, I mean, I'm, I'm making an assumption here from yeah. the data that I've worked on, but, re but your attention, yeah. your attrition must be quite low. That's kind of helpful for the business, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how too many companies still think that fun is diametrically opposed to business. Right. It's just not. I think it's the key driver. <laughs> it's the key driver. We're human. And just what, what I want to ask you a question about people making an assumption. Now, I know that you've lived and worked in the US. You've lived and worked in China. There is an assumption that is often made where people assume that, oh, yeah, that would work in America, but it definitely wouldn't work in China. China's got a very different culture. So I'd be really grateful if you could explain to the listeners what is similar? What are differences? What, what's similar? What's different? I'd say uh, we're all humans. So that's what we have in common. We all want to be seen, heard, valued, understood, right? We all want to wake up and enjoy where we're going to work. 
We all want to feel like we're doing more than surviving in the workplace, that we're thriving, that we have career development goals that we're cared about. Those are the things that are in common. And from a leadership standpoint, I haven't worked in that many countries, but I would say it'd be hard to imagine a place where people didn't care about those things. So that's first and foremost, the most important thing. And I think it's also the predominant thing. So where are the differences? Of course, there are nuances. There are a lot of people in China. That's a difference. (laughs) We have to look at um, differences in how we operate. We have to look at differences in hiring practices. How do we sift through to find the right people? Because everything's about finding the right people for the right roles and then making sure that we unleash them. So the the scale perhaps is a little bit different, but that's that's operational. That's the how. For me, the who and the what are the same. The how can vary based on what will land the best. Brilliant, brilliant. And yeah, they, they, I, I haven't lived in China, I've only visited, but I have done work with global companies. And I, I that's the feeling I take away is exactly what you said. The commonalities are so much bigger than any cultural differences. And it's it's getting through to the human. Once you're through to the human, the yeah. rest of it's easy. So Emily, I can't let you leave without telling the story that has come back into my mind so many times since we met, which is about why you wrote your book and the story of you as a human, as a leader. Well, it started off as a memoir of the children that we've cared for in our spare room. I mentioned that I wanted to be a doctor and I I didn't have the emotional distance to make it in my occupation, but that passion has sort of threaded its way through my life. And over the last 22 years, we've cared for now 17. We have a 17th in our home right now, cats. Um, vulnerable children who don't have a safe place to stay. And it's not through a fostering program. It's truly through like If I were to try and best articulate it in a sentence, it would be the magic of the universe (laughs) because there's no other explanation for how all these different young people and babies have ended up in our home all through completely different, somewhat amazing means. And we've had the privilege of taking care of them. And so I started off wanting to tell the story of the spare room and these amazing children, not only telling stories of transformation, but also kind of educating people about like the relatively wide social cracks in the justice system. Then the book started to evolve because as you dig deeper and you try to figure out what is the story that is worth telling that somebody's going to pick up and want to read, it becomes deeper than that. It becomes what I do in my personal life really does integrate with who I am as a leader. And that intentionality that we've talked about so much doesn't just stop in the home. It has to extend into the workplace. You know, when you have to pick the important moments, what do you pick? You don't get to have two separate calendars for work and personal life. It's all one calendar. You only have 24 hours. So that intentionality is important. And then I think we talked earlier about Diana, who invited me to her home, breaking down those walls of hierarchy. Nothing works as well as showing who you are as a human being, as a leader. Now, you have to be a little bit okay with being vulnerable. But, you know, I had one boy, the one who lived with us for the longest, his name is Teo, and he was born with hydrocephalus. And so he was bound to a wheelchair for most of the time that he stayed with us. And we would bring him into the office. And I wanted him to see where I worked so he can imagine where mama goes when she's gone all day. And I wanted my team to see this is my son because we were in the process of adopting him at that time. And that's not how it worked out, but it's still wonderful. And we're still family. And I think the inadvertent consequences, people really felt much closer to me. They didn't just see the title or the office, but they actually saw the human behind 
and they you can you can say all you want that you care for somebody they may or may not take that first step of faith to say i believe you do care for me here's what i need let me raise my hand but if they see you truly care enough for somebody else that you will set aside space in your spare room to take care of the special needs boy for years, then maybe it accelerates that faith curve where you might be more willing to lean into me and say, hey, I need your help because I have a much higher degree of confidence that you really will help me. That level of authenticity and it's just such a wonderfully warm story that somebody who's so successful in her business career understands that the most important thing to be a good leader is to be a human, to be 100% authentic about who you are, what you care about. And I, I talked to a woman called De Debbie Vivangas, mm -hmm. who works at IBM. I don't know if you've met her, but she's another amazing woman. And she told a similar story that her little girl actually died while she was working at IBM. And she couldn't leave that at home. And she didn't want to leave it at home because that's who she is. You can't pretend to be something you're not. And I think it's a mistake that too many leaders make that they feel they have to be all consuming. I know everything. I'm invincible. It's like, no, you don't. Just be a human. Be real. Thank you so much, Emily. I've loved this. I've loved this conversation. I could genuinely carry on all day. What would you like to call your episode of Humans Leading Humans? Hmm. Maybe unconventional leadership. Because I guess you've probably used human leadership somewhere along the way, right? <laughs> yeah, humans have been mentioned. <laughs> I suppose you mention it now and then. <laughs> unconventional leadership, it shall be. Thank you so much for your time, Emily. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really Thank appreciate you. your time. Having me. Oh my goodness, Emily. I just loved that conversation and I've got so much to think about. Um, so what did I take from that? There you go, dear listeners. It's okay to be unconventional. It's okay to follow your heart. Bracken Darrell, who is the CEO of Logitech, who was a guest in a previous episode, he talked about the power of mentoring, about being mentored and about mentoring. But just listening to how that wonderful woman made Emily feel and how it's affected her life just by being brave enough to invite her into her home, to be brave enough to just be 100% herself by making Emily, who was just a young girl, just starting out in her career, feel recognized and able to be authentic. So there you go. Don't be a boss, be an influence. Just do it. Just do it, dear people. As I said in, in last week's episode with Amy, be real. See and unleash the potential of other people. It costs nothing, but your small investment could change the narrative of the humans that you recognize, you reward, that you provide space for. And you know what's best? It feels great, so it's a win-win. And have fun, dear listeners. Play and work are not diametrically opposed. As Emily said, Fun and play are the things that make us human. They are the things that help us to develop real relationships. 
So you have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. And by the way, if you loved this conversation as much as I did, and you love Emily as much as I do now, you may be interested to know that she is speaking at the Marketing Society. Uh, it's called the Changemakers Conference, and it's on the 10th of November in London. So go and check out the program. It's good, believe me. Massive, massive thanks to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the CREATE framework and how we support companies by unlocking the problem-solving potential of humans. If you love this week's episode, pass it on to your friends, pass it on to the colleagues you think might need a shot of inspiration, and better still, if you're unlucky enough to have a boss who doesn't understand how to create environments in which humans thrive, pass this on to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.